This will be the 21st message in this series of messages on the whole counsel of God. What can we learn from the fact that if God be an infinite God, what can this mean to our life and how should our lives reflect or be submitted unto this great principle? We have labored in our last setting to set forth the proposition that God is not limited by things in his creation as to the fulfillment of his eternal plan and purpose for his creation. Our God is an infinite God. He's not a tribal deity. He's not some little local God that is confined to a certain area and thereby he can have no influence in an area across the waters. He's not a God that is confined to a certain time period like the Roman gods were, or the Grecian gods. They were erected, they became great, then they passed away uh, and are little known today. Our God, the infinite God of heaven and earth, is not a God of time. That is, he's great one day, and then in the next generation, his greatness is lost. Uh, he is not limited to time and to place. He is unable to be completely comprehended in all of his ways. He is a great and omnipotent God. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn from this? I think that there are basically three that we'll try to cover this morning, dealing with some things that are of value from this proposition that our God is an infinite God. The first is found in the 139th, I'm sorry, uh, have you turned to uh, Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 51 and verse 4, Psalms chapter 51 and verse 4. And the first lesson to lay the foundation for the message today is that we can learn that if God is an infinite God, that we need to recognize the infinite evil that exists in sin. Now, I think it is absolutely imperative that before we will ever have an appreciation of the death of Jesus Christ, we must see why it was necessary that Christ had to die. And if sin is something that is not very critical, then certainly it would not have been deserving of God's Son to have to die in the fashion that he did. But... Let us not think lightly of sin. Let us see the hideous nature of sin and then view it in light of how God dealt with sin in giving his Son upon the cross. Now, here is this principle, and we must establish it, that all sin, regardless of its nature, now listen carefully, is directed against the sovereignty of God. All sin, regardless of its nature, is directed against the sovereignty of God. When God created the angelic beings, we know of a host of them that fell. And the nature of their sin was, was this, I will ascend into the heavens, I will be as God. And so when Lucifer fell and led the host of angels with him, 
It was a direct rebellion against God's right to be God. Now, this same thing happened and entered into the race of mankind. When Adam and Eve fell, it was an attack upon God's right to be God. And they themselves wanted the right to be God and determine their own destinies. And so sin, regardless of its nature, whether it be what we would classify as a minor sin or as a major sin, is ultimately directed against God's right to be God. Now let us see this forth in Psalm chapter 51 in the life of David. David, we know, was a man after God's own heart. He was the chosen, the anointed one of God. And yet David fell into sin. When he committed his sin with Bathsheba, there was the sin of adultery. But he went a step further than that. He had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed, and thereby he became guilty of the sin of murder. And so, what did David, when he was brought face to face with his action, what did he view himself as guilty of, that is, his actions. What did he begin to mourn over them? In Psalm chapter 51, beginning in verse 1, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now notice carefully verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. And he is not casting a reflection upon the purity of his mother. David was born in wedlock, but he's merely making a reference that he received a depraved, original, Adamic nature from his mother, and that is what is called in theology original sin, the original sin which we all have within our nature. But now here's an individual that has committed some acts of sin. Now how did he view these acts? Did he view them lightly or did he view them seriously? Well, first, let's examine what acts that he, he committed. We see that, as we would read the account, that David was upon his balcony and he looked down and saw Bathsheba, another woman which was not his wife, taking a bath and he desired her. Lusted after her, brought her into his chambers and there committed adultery with her and as a result, she conceived and bare a son, and that son was later taken under the judgment of God. But here was a case in which that David, as a man, violated the purity of another man's wife, so that we could say that David did not fulfill the commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and the second unto it is like this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, how do I love my neighbor? How can I, as an individual, love my neighbor? One way is just what David failed to do. 
I do not violate the purity of my neighbor's wife. If I love my neighbor, then I do not violate the purity of his wife because that belongs unto him. That's one of the ways I show my love to my neighbor. Well, David went a step further than that. He sinned against Bathsheba. But he also went and had Uriah the Hittite put in the first line of the battle and there he was killed, and thereby David became guilty of murder. David wronged Uriah the Hittite. But now notice that it was a step further than this. It is true he wronged Bathsheba. It is true he sinned against Uriah. But because of the work of the Spirit of God, which brought David face to face with the nature of his sin, when he came to ask for forgiveness, he prayed this prayer against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Which was, it sin goes beyond human beings. When I wrong you, beloved, I go beyond that which is harmful to you. Sin is an attack upon God's right to command, God's right to be God. When God has a right to say, Thou shalt do this, and when man says, I won't do it, then he becomes one who is attacking the direct nature of God's right to be God. Now, most people today, they would not have anything against God as long as he's a God who is afar somewhere and is not actively involved in their affairs. But when you begin to proclaim the God of the Bible, the God who is infinite, who not only is, is out there in space, but who is even as near as our thoughts and intents of our heart, then man begins to squirm. Then man begins to say, no, that's not the kind of God I want anything to do with. But sin is directed against the sovereignty of God. Someone asked the question then, well, Pastor Gables, if sin is directed against God, surely, though, the way God has seen fit to deal with it, it's how can God punish a person eternally for them sinning in time? That is, here is a person which commits an act in time, but yet God seems to delve out punishment far greater than the action. Now, how can this be just? All right, we'll give you this illustration. Sin is not only punished by the seriousness of its act, but it's punished by who the act is committed against. And did you understand that? Sin is not only punishable by how serious it is, but by who it's committed against. Let's suppose I go outside the door and it seems like that this particular community is quite notorious for stray dogs. We have them all the time around here. Uh, but let's suppose, now some of you will probably be members of the Humane Society and you won't like this illustration. But let's suppose I go outside the door and there's one over there in front of my parsonage again. And I go out and I take my foot and I try to persuade that thing to get off the front porch. And I give it a certain blow with my foot. Well, the individual may move, and the only one that I've uh, raised the wrath of might be someone who's a member of the Humane Society. No one else cares. But I have used my foot to commit an action against the dog. 
Well, now let's suppose that I come over to your house then, Brother Powell, and I take that same foot and I kick just as hard on your shins as I did against that dog. Now, the same action takes place, but there'll probably be a little more serious consequences. Is that right? I wouldn't be surprised if what you wouldn't just rear back your shoe and do a, give a little bit in return. The action's the same, but the consequences are more of a serious nature. Now, let's suppose I go out to Mr. Harper back here, who is a policeman, and I take the same foot and I use the same amount of force I use against the dog and against Mr. Powell, and I do that same thing to a lawman, the consequences are going to be more serious yet. And then if I take that same foot and I go to the president of our country and I kick him on the shins, then I can be prosecuted for treason against our country. The same act, but yet it is not just the seriousness of the act that is committed, but it is against who the act is committed. Now, you apply that in the nature of sin. You may think, well, it's not so bad for me to commit an act which wrongs my fellow man. But my friend, sin goes beyond that. It's an act against an infinite God. And thereby, the only way that an infinite God can punish sin is to do it eternally, because that's accordance with His nature. And thereby, you have the ground established for God's justice in establishing the eternal torment of the wicked. They are punished eternally because God is infinite and because He is eternal, and man's sin is directed against that infinite, eternal nature of God. So let us not look lightly upon sin. Sin is a very serious thing. And it's my personal conviction, this is one reason why we do not have more people seeking the mercy of God in Jesus Christ is because the terrible nature of sin is not propagated in our modern purpose as it once was. And thereby you don't have men taking serious why Christ had to go to the cross. So this is one lesson that we can learn from God's infinite nature. Now here's a second lesson. Now listen carefully. That only the infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ can atone for sin. Now beloved, if you commit an act against God, then that means that you have sinned and you've come short of God's glory. You've attacked His glory. Then the question is, how then can I ever be made right in the eyes of that God whom I have offended? Now then, we invite your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. How can sinful man hope to enter into the presence of a righteous and holy judge having offended the judge himself. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, we read these words. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
Now here is one of the reasons now in the background of this terrible nature and the seriousness of sin why there must be hope in the cross and the cross alone. If you do not see the nature of sin and its terrible consequences, you will not appreciate the work of Christ on the cross. Now how can I then be made right with God? Let's suppose I have broken his commandment. Let's suppose I have violated one of his laws and thereby I have attacked his very right to be God. Will God's justice just pass that by? Even our own courts in our society will not permit this. When a crime is committed, justice cries out that it be handled properly. And an unjust judge will not remain long in office in our American society. When someone tries to put a $5 bill underneath the table in order to get off easy in court, our very what's left of our moral fiber in our society cries out, get him out of office. We want somebody who's just there. Well, then here when a person commits a sin against the sovereign God, how can this sovereign God deal in justice with that sin And, beloved, he cannot just bypass it. He must deal with it. Well, how does he then deal with it? Can I, as an individual, come before this God and say, well, now, wait a minute, I'll tell you what I'll do. I committed one sin, I'll work the rest of my life to pay off what I owe you. And that system is one of the most popular systems of religion today, and that's called salvation by human merit or human works. And it is that supposedly there's something left within man that he can settle his own account with God by his own actions. He commits one wrong act. He reasons, I can commit ten good acts and cancel out the one bad one. But my friend, if that be true, and that is logical to the natural man, we would ask the question, why then was it necessary for God to deal with sin by putting his son to death? Why, if it was man can earn his own salvation by keeping certain laws and rules and regulations, why did Christ have to go to the death, even the death of the cross? And it is but to show man that there's only one thing that can atone for an infinite sin, and that's the infinite blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And when individuals refuse to bow and submit to that, it merely means that they maintain or desire to maintain a system of self-righteousness before God. We were not redeemed with traditions and customs and ordinances and so forth, that are as silver and gold, but we have been redeemed, those of us that have been made partakers of Christ, by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, why do some people not view the blood of Christ as being precious? Simply because they've never been brought face to face with the serious nature of sin. But my friend, if you have been brought face to face with sin, as it is an attack upon God, you will certainly make your way to flee to the cross of Christ for mercy. Oh, that you might even do that here today. Do you but see that when that soldier put the sword into the side of our Lord and Savior, that was your sin that went in there? That was your sin and mine which put him to death? 
Oh, my friend, sin is more than just this little uh, mistake or an oversight. Sin is an attack upon God Himself. And that's why that when I, even as a Christian, when I commit an act of sin and God the Holy Spirit presses it upon my being as He did with David, I see that it was my sin which put Christ on the cross. And it was His love for me that went there to that cross. And that produces a repentance, a sorrow, and asking God for a cleanliness and a forgiveness of that act of sin. So let us value the infinite work of Christ on the cross. It was not just another man that died there. It was not just another lamb that died there. It was God Himself which died upon the cross. It was the judge which gave the law against whom you and I have sinned against that took upon Himself a body and became a man and died in the stead of sinners. Oh, you wonder how that a righteous God can be just? He does not overlook sin. He does not bypass sin. But He can be just and the justifier because He Himself took upon Himself the very nature of our sin. It's penalty. And because that sin was infinite and against an infinite God, only an infinite God can deal with sin. And He dealt with it on the cross. That God might impress upon your heart the glories that are in the gospel. That we might be enabled to sing, O God, how great Thou art. How great Thou art that we have a salvation that is of infinite value and worth in the sight of God. Then the third lesson that can be learned from God's infinity, and that is this. Those who have been reconciled to God need not fear His ability to perform any mercy for them. You understand that? Those of you that are Christian here this morning, you need not fear any ability on God's part to perform any mercy for you. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, we read these words, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, listen, above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. You ever get discouraged sometimes and think, well, maybe there's just some things that God can't do. And maybe there's no need for me to pray then because God couldn't do them and that there's something that's limiting him from carrying them out. My friend, may I encourage you this morning to get a higher view of God than that. May I encourage you to see that you have access unto a God who's able to do more than you can even think or imagine that he's capable of performing. Or say, Pastor, how is this applicable to me? All right, maybe some of you are here and you've gotten certain news. Maybe the doctors told you that fearful thing which you have been, all people are fearful of hearing. And you may have reached the point where you say, there is no hope. There is no hope. But wait just a minute. There's an infinite God who's able to work abundantly all above that which you and I have a, even any expectation of. And he has worked this way in accordance with his eternal purposes in Christ. You may say, but pastor, I'm in such a predicament financially. 
that I don't believe even God could get me out of this situation. Now, wait just a minute. Don't you limit the Holy One of Israel by your own reasoning. God will deliver in His own time and in His own place. You do not make a tribal God out of Him and say, well, He can't get me out of this situation. Or He's got to deliver in this particular time. Remember, beloved, that he is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. We talked about this morning in our uh, young marriage class uh, about young people uh, desiring to find a husband or a wife. Maybe some of you are like that here this morning and you say, I guess there's just no hope left. I don't believe even God could give me a wife or a husband. Now, wait just a minute. He is able to do far exceedingly above that which you think and that he is able of. But now listen carefully. Don't start prescribing the time and the place for God to do it. Now that's when that you stop worshiping this infinite God and then you bring him down to a God whom you and I control. God will open this Red Sea at the time and the place when we think it's impossible. And the waters will part. And I could stand before you today to say, I've been at some of those seas. And I've been there and I've seen the impossibility of going on any further. And I've turned behind and I've seen the armies of Pharaoh coming and it looked like certain destruction for my life as far as what it was going to amount to. And what does Moses say? Stand still and see the salvation of God. At such a time when we think it is impossible for God to do anything, the seas open and they come to pass and we are enabled to walk over on dry ground. Now, I know some will say, well, it's almost impossible to live in today's society. I'm a Christian counselor, and we spend a great deal of our ministry in counseling with people. And I know the problems people have. I can safely say I've sat somewhat where you've sat in certain areas. And if I haven't been there, I've talked with enough people that have. And I know what the problems you're facing. And many times in my counseling, I have to sit back and I just have to scratch my head. And, and there is such a complex problem that this individual is in that it looks like if they do this, it's going to offset five other things that you just have to say, where do you get out of it? I don't have any advice to tell you. But yet I'm always brought back to this one thing, this promise right here. If you're in right to here, and you think that you can go no further financially, physically, because of your health, emotionally, in your home or your family, your job, whatever it is, remember that there is an infinite God who can work out of chaos and speak and the worlds can come into existence and be put in their exact order. Now remember that. And when that I as a minister... When your mother and dad, when your sister or brother, your husband or wife cannot give you any advice or any hope as to what course of action to take, there is an infinite God who can reach down and set that chaos into order and bring it out of disorder. 
May God help you and I today to be able to see that our God is one who is infinite and is in the heavens. Let's stand together.